we argued all the way through that instrument. But when it was done, it was kind of like neither one of us had had much a part into it, you know, because you're not your your whole ego isn't wrapped into it. It was both of us. And it was like a duet. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. And I like that word, duet. Normally, we use the word when referring to making music. I play duets with my wife Paula, for instance. I play the violin, and she plays the banjo. In this podcast, however, we get to know a husband and wife who make violins, violas, and cellos together. They have even won major awards for their instruments, each one of them a duet. Joseph Grubaugh was born in the United States, while his wife, Sigrun Seifert, was born in Germany. Today they live in Petaluma, California, a former agricultural town 40 miles north of San Francisco that was once known as the egg capital of the world. To reach their violin shop, Paul and I followed a winding path that took us around the side of their house and through a backyard garden adorned with flowers and ornamental bushes. We then crossed a creek using a small bridge and entered a large two-story shop, the air filled with the bewitching aroma of wood shavings and varnish. Everywhere we looked, we saw the elegant shapes of violins and cellos in different stages of construction. On the workbenches, there were a variety of chisels and the small curved planes that violin makers use to carve the tops and backs of violins and cellos. Here then is part one of my conversation with Joe and Sigrun. I am Sigrun Seifert, and I was born in Bad Kreuznach, at the time West Germany, and into a typical middle-class family. And what year were you born? Uh, I was born in 1955. And um, my parents were both artists and high school teachers, and as a typical middle-class family with lots of children. We were, I'm one of seven. We all played an instrument. And I was playing the violin at the age of seven. I was introduced to it. And when I went 10, I changed over to cello. And at the time I got a cello from the school and was expected to get one from our local violin maker that he was restoring that would be affordable for us. So, but my brother, who was at the time already in university studying music, had his violin at the at that repair place. And so when we visited him, I was really curious about the shop and the tools and everything because I always was curious and messing around in my father's workshop. And um, so one in the evening when we were sitting typically as a family together with a glass of wine and and we were thinking about what my next step would be after I was graduating, I my, my brother had the idea of saying, great, um, you could be a violin maker and make me a violin. And, um, and I thought, okay. And he was already on his way to become a teacher. And he said to me, you know, even so my parents would have loved me to be 
a teacher, he said, the teaching profession is not what it used to be when my parents were younger or teaching, or my father also, you know, still was teaching. And so, yeah, we, I decided, okay, check it out. And um, I applied, was turned down at, at Mittenwald, the violin making school, and I was turned down as they were full. So I started a, at a specialty school for child development. And was my first semester there when I got a call in the autumn saying they had an opening. And if I would, and it was on a Friday and I should start on Monday. And uh, it was kind of a surprise and everybody, my parents didn't want to hear about it. My brother said, well, go and do it, check it out for a semester. If it's not for you, then you haven't lost anything. You'd you know, and you won't say later, I regret not doing it. So I went and stayed. How far was Mittenwald from where you lived? Uh, five hours by car and longer by by train. So it wasn't just around the corner. And so it was a commitment, money-wise too, and um, which was uh, something my, my parents... I mean, even though the school is free, but Mittenwald is a tourist town and expensive to live there. And um, my father was hoping that I would get BARFIC, which is a state support for big families, but it never really came in. uh, It came into being only toward the last semester I had in school. In the meantime, part of my survival in in school was um, doing... um, after school being house cleaner, working at Hotel Post as a dishwasher and um, babysitting and so kind of surviving that way. And then with some care packages from my brother uh, and then the German Violin Makers Association gave me a little, little bit of money per month. So that was very nice. What years was this that you were at the school? I started in autumn of uh, 1972 and graduated in February of 76. And uh, I've heard this before, that the violin students were treated terribly oh. by the, the local landlords. Can you tell me a little yes. bit about that? Um, living in Mittenwald was, um, because it's a tourist town, people would rent out rooms for skiers and, and summer tourists. So violin students got the worst of the worst. And my first uh, place where I lived, the landlady literally cleaned out the rooms of four students over the winter holiday, stuffed all of our stuff into one pile somewhere in the attic probably, and rented it out to tourists. And as we came back the same day, all of us, we found our rooms dirty and our belongings mixed up totally. So we would go out in the hall and say, who has what, you know, who's belonging to the CSO. And when we tried to complain, there was no way we could complain because um, we would be kicked out. And so it was quite often that you saw at the end of a semester students moving from one room to another because somebody graduated and a good room would become free. And then there would be the circle of, oh, I want to have this better location, so... 
So do you think there was uh, generally in the community a respect for the fact that this town had been at one time such an important violin producing, uh, you know, region? But the 1970s, was this just like violin making was something they didn't even think much about as, as meaningful or financially important to them? No, um, you also have to think about that. The majority of the students in the violin making school, we were about, I don't know, very, I think under 50 somehow. I forgot the number, but it was rather little. And the majority were foreigners and we were hippies. We had long hair and... Um, we looked atrocious. I mean, if you should have seen my bicycle, it was from the dump, day glow orange. So the soldiers on their way back to the to the caserna before the gates closed would steal bicycles every time to town to, to bicycle out to their um, place of work, uh, being soldiers. And so nobody would steal my bicycle. And I had no light. So I had a basket with a flashlight swinging in the front. So people would drive very far around me, not to hit me. And that, the Mittenwalders who were so into looking Bavarian and so traditional, we were eyesores for them. And that was, that was the clash, and therefore they didn't have much interest in us. So I'm Joe Grubaugh. I was uh, born in 1950 in Mississippi, but... Uh, my father was uh, uh, recalled into the Air Force. He had been a bomber pilot during World War II, and he was recalled for military transport, uh, Air Force transport in uh, in the Korean conflict. And so we quickly moved from Mississippi to Texas, where he got retrained, and then Los Angeles, Japan for th- almost three years in Japan in the early 50s, uh, Charleston, South Carolina in the the middle 50s, uh, Mount Holly, New Jersey, in, uh, up until 1960 when we moved to Spain, to Madrid, Spain, and then uh, Chateauroux, France, and then back to California in 1963. So uh, at the, I went to a high school, frankly was staying out of the draft after high school because I was 18 in 1968 and my father wasn't interested in me going into the service. So I started junior college where I found that uh, my rock and roll roots from all the time of being a young man during uh, all that, you know, all the music in the Bay Area was uh, led me to have some facility with uh, music. And I did really well and started studying classical music, transferred to the University of the Pacific at the conservatory there got a degree in theory and comp there. Right away, I think I'd gone into a shop also, like Seagrin was saying, you go into a shop and it just seemed like it was just everything. It was music and it was stuff and three-dimensional stuff. And whereas with music, when you play it, it's gone. This was stuff that was still there after you'd worked on it. And that was a real interesting uh, marriage, I thought. So I studied as a violin maker played rock and roll at night for a while. Eventually, through sheer luck, Sigrin got a job at Weishaar because she was so talented and and she just made beautiful work in Mittenwald and Hans had seen some of her work. I stumbled into a shop looking for a job and Hans Weishaar happened to be there and saw more that I was energetic, I think, 
and maybe some potential. And so I started at Weissauer. Siegrun was already there. And so who was Weissauer? So Hans Weissauer was a was a violin maker that that uh, uh, also studied in Mittenwald in the in the thirties maybe he was born in nineteen thirteen so late twenties uh, thirties somewhere in there and he came to this country and worked with the preeminent violin maker probably in the world at that time who was uh, uh, Simone Ferdinand Sacconi who was working for Wurlitzer in the New York area and Hans had worked with him for eight years and then set up in Los Angeles in the late 40s, early 50s. He had all the big clients come in, all these studio musicians from Los Angeles who were leftovers from New York. And I think there was a fledgling uh, 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 recording industry at that time that was really starting to bloom where all of the music for movies was written and scored. And so famous violins started coming. Uh, Hans had his story with a famous uh, red violin, and uh, which was washed out to sea in the mid '50s, and in a in a freak storm that came through and washed up on a beach a day later. And Hans had put that back together. I think there's a Life magazine article, you know. So Hans was a famous restorer. I felt just absolutely stunned that I got anywhere close to having a job there. And then meeting all of these other really talented people who had gone to school to learn this. And I had just kind of looked over my boss's shoulder and mostly did school repairs. And, you know, it was clever in my ways. But, boy, I just felt so inferior. And Sigrun came down. And because I got paid right away, I think she picked a fight with me right away. I think there was some some uh, a little tiff, a little little uh, <laughs> tiff over turf somehow, uh, and I slowly fell in love with her. I think that was that was part of, and and we worked so well together. We just work well together. I I don't have to, I don't have to ask her to do something if I'm if I'm have if I have a project that needs gluing. Uh, you know, I want her help, and she tunes in. And when it's a, and it's the same vice versa. So there, we always got each other's help. There was just something that was, we just tune in with each other. And then we got together and moved, got a job up here in Los Angeles, uh, in San Francisco, uh, with Nash Mondragon at Cremona Music, and and he talked us into making a violin together after maybe a year and a half or two years there was a competition coming up he said why don't you guys make one together so we had sep- we had some separate days that we worked and that we had co- days that we worked together because we were commuting by then from Petaluma where we bought our house in 1980 and this was in the early 80s that we worked there and you know i would I would work all day on the violin and then come home and Sigrun would go in the next day and work on it. And then I would come back. We would both come back on the third day and I would see that she had ruined all my work. And she was saying that, no, my work needed help. And she had done that help to it. And we argued all the way through that instrument. But when it was done, it was kind of like neither one of us had had much a part into it, you know, because you're not your your whole ego isn't wrapped into it. It was both of us. And it was like a duet. And 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 we could maybe, you know, usually when you're finished with something, you really think it's really good 
for about a day and then you think it's horrid and to, until somebody buys it this is that's not an unusual thing for most creative people i think players run through the same thing there's just parts that you don't want to hear of your recording that you did because you know you flubbed them although no one else knows that but but when we were finished with it neither of we just we could look at it for the first time like it wasn't our work or my work or her work it was our work or it was someone else's work and then and then you can be critical in a less um judgmental way of you're not judging your work anymore because it I, you know we had I'd lost what was mine and what was hers during all that and I think she did the same and we were pretty stunned by it and since then with very rare exception we've made all of our instruments together it's I, I love working with with her she, I, I trust her we still have our arguments she will uh, often win and but I always have the right of veto and if I win she has the right of veto too we can we can put a stop to each other and again it's we try not to have hurt feelings <laughs> and sometimes that happens but yeah mostly it's mostly it's wonderful i i can't imagine not doing it this way um we both do uh, we can we're both skilled all the way through uh, i like doing certain things she likes doing certain things but the instruments always go back and forth always back and forth so the violin in the competition, how did it do? Uh, it did very well. I think we won a certificate for that one, for for workmanship. Uh, at the time, the the judging was was um, required uh, different things to win a gold medal. When we finally started winning gold medals, for when we applied to to the Violin Society of America, and can we make them? You know, at the, at the, at that point in time, it was individual makers you made the whole thing we said well look we make these together they were they were very understanding if you look at history the Stradivari shop was Stradivari his sons some other helpers Amati was Amati and all the people Amati taught were in his shop so it wasn't Amati making violins showing other makers how to make violins so that they could compete with him they were making his violins so there's a there's a a template of, of tradition of of people working together on instruments with rare exception the rare exception the individual was a rare exception during the time the golden time of violin making from 1550 to 1750 mostly so they understood that and and we did well with it we also put in i think some individual instruments and got certificates of merit for those and um by the time we started winning, actually Seagram won a gold medal for work that she did on a viola in 84, I think, 83, 84, something like that. Uh, I got third prize in the American Federation competition, which was very prestigious and third prize overall. And then it wasn't until 92 that we got a gold medal together. And then uh, we ended up with uh, five gold, four silver, for our work together. So it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's, and then excused from, or, yeah, taken out of competition. Uh, Ur concours is a designation where you're, you're uh, basically above or outside of the concourse, I think. So some French thing of being outside of the competition. 
which means you can't compete anymore, which is nice. <laughs> Competitions were always fretful, fretful times making them. Think, you know, is this good enough? Is this good enough? They you know, could not be fretful in, in the violin. It's right. It's, it is uh, fretless in violin. <laughs> That's Sorry. right. That's right. Life is a song, let's sing it together Let's take our hearts and dip them in rhyme Let's learn the words, let's learn the music together Hoping the song lasts for a long, long time One of the reasons we traveled to Northern California to interview Joe and Seagren, apart from the fact that they are regarded as two of the most accomplished violin makers in the world today, is that they also played a central role in recovering a Stradivari violin that was missing for decades and was thought to be stolen. Here is that story. So, 1994, 1993, something like that, right around in there. Um, we had a we had a customer that came in, mm-hmm. who had a violin from his student, that he, and he was a good player, and he uh, really he was a baroque player. Yeah, and when he walked in, he said, "You know, I pulled out all my classical stuff because I just wanted to play, and he played classical. Yeah, not playing, yeah, not yeah. baroque. And so, yeah, that's a fine distinction." Um, it is well, but he was. Is, yeah, he liked this violin. Mm-hmm. He he asked us what we thought, and we looked at it, and you know, it, it was a late Strat. It was very obvious that it was a Stradivari violin made in the in the latter part of his life. It was so. This was a violin made in the latter part of Strad's career when he was in his eighties or nineties, and the work was a little sloppy. His sons, who had helped him, were in their sixties. So the work was getting a little, little reedy, uh, and and um, uh, it was clearly a Stradivari. And uh, why, why did you know? Ah, oh, you just do because what we copy, the instruments that we are primarily interested in are the those in, those great instruments. So we stare at those when we see them in real life, and you you get an idea of what's correct and what's not, and what somebody else. There's been people copying Stradivarius forever, uh, some badly, but some quite well, and you start knowing the real earmarks from the from the ones that are left out. Some certain things can get left out when it's not something. You recognize instruments um, just by varnish, by um, even if you don't know who made it, but you can see the quality. I remember very early on at Weishardt's, uh, Hans brought me an instrument and it looked atrocious. It was dull, ugly, and and he said, well, that was a Galliano that was for a long time in a closet and I would not have recognized it because I was just starting out in the business to, to 
And he said, once you, once you clean it and spiff it up, you know, you'll see its beauty, mm-hmm. you know. But it was a great lesson to know, to recognize something uh, when it isn't in perfectly uh, kept a condition, mm-hmm. which can happen. You can come across something that is kind of in in bad repair, kind of um, uh, dull, unkept, maybe with a mouse hole, too. We have seen that and had it here and repaired. That's when a mouse gnaws into the F-hole. And builds a nest inside. Yeah. And that's quite common yeah. if an instrument just stored in an attic or somewhere. And so that that kind of... Yeah. So for us to see then an instrument come in like this, it, it just... All our bells go off, mm. you know, and say, how come? Why don't they know what they have? Yeah. You know, wait, this is, you know. And well, it took us a week to slowly piece this together. We The, the instrument was left with us to work on. Mm-hmm. We quickly... I, I was sure it was a Strad, and then there are there are a number of books that have the, the iconography of Stradivari. The, all the photographs, or a lot of photographs of the existing Stradivaries. So, I was looking at the end of the book uh, at the late Strads, and there it was, that same instrument. And then the question is, why is it photographed in a book, and somebody doesn't know what it is, and so. So then when you start answering questions, you look for sometimes the wrong thing to grab onto to to try to solve this puzzle because it was a puzzle at that point in time. And it puzzled us for a week thinking, why? And, you know, we just heard enough of the story. He had borrowed it from a student. The student was was sketchy about how she got it. Uh, He came back to pick it up a week later. uh, We talked about things being, you know, missing. Why is it in the book and why doesn't she know about it? Yeah. And Seagren happened to I, reach I was, into a... Well, I was on the phone when this conversation between the two men were happening. And and I just figured on the phone, reach into my desk, pull out the lost instrument file that we had, a big From the, folder. Yeah, the, of, the American Federation of Island and Bowmakers has put together a... Uh, uh, a list of everyone saying we've this instrument is missing. And when the two men said, "Oh," when our customer said, "Oh, strats don't go missing," and I said, "Sure," and I pulled out and handed it to them, and, and flip through and see that instrument, was. which was the Duke of Alcantara. So the Duke was missing uh, from yeah. Los Angeles, uh, UCLA, in 1967. And so all of a sudden we got <laughs> went really quiet. And how how is it that yeah you know this instrument is here lost obviously yeah. missing missing and um, so the customer left. Uh, so we talked a little bit. We put the violin in the case. It wasn't ours. We didn't know quite what to do. We're not. Uh, later, our, our uh, well, uh, we put the violin in the case. He left. We immediately called uh, our lawyer, who is also a violin maker, Carla Chapro, uh, and a dear friend forever. And Carla said, you did the right thing. You're not cops. Now let's solve it. Let's get to UCLA. Well, 
let's 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 find out from UCLA what's happening. So we found a way into the collector at UCLA, um, and but she also said to us, "Write it down. Write it down. Yeah, because memory can really yeah. fool you very fast. Yeah, even if it just happened. Yeah, things just play tricks on you, and we um, we also informed." The American Federation That's at right. the time, uh, the secretary, yeah. that it was here in our shop. Yeah, that they we would got know. in touch with Porcaro, I think, at UCLA yes. at the time. Yeah, and so so we right away spread the word that this instrument has mm -hmm. surfaced here. Yeah. And uh, but it was very uh, interesting to know how fast facts can skew. Yeah. So yeah, then so. the story unfolded to us over the next couple of months pretty quickly. UCLA came up. There was a sheriff or the, the, the deputy from UCLA. Uh, police, yeah. The police there came up and interviewed us. And then who has it? And then the person's uh, name, the students, uh, the student of this person that came in, what's her name? And there was a long drawn out procedure of getting the instrument back from her And then slowly the story of how it went missing, the night it went missing, there was a there was a player in a quartet at UCLA who had maybe left it in the back of his car or maybe put it on top of his car. We've seen that happen before. You just don't think about it. You put it up there to unlock the door. You pick up this, you do that, you forget the violin. We don't know how it went missing. It could have been snitched out of the back of his car. We started seeing all the story. He was... He was. He had to pay. He was. He had to. He went. To, he went from UCLA to f somewhere and ended up paying a lot for it. Yeah, there was this. There was a guy named Mark Marco that wrote a story about this famous Duke of. Or he wrote a story about a violin, the lives of a violin, very much like the Red Violin. It was. A, it was amazing how uh, how those two stories. You'd you'd if you had written the first book you would be suing the people that made the red violin uh, for that story um, because it was the life of a violin, the places it can go uh, and, and the covetousness of it and, and, and the people that had it and they wouldn't tell. And they, you know, there was somebody who said they found it on the side of the freeway and it was this, this person's uh, aunt-in-law and, and the violin had been all over the United States in, all of the shops and no one had thought to bring it up and no one had said, Oh, what a lovely strad you have. It was, it just didn't happen for whatever reason. It was in kind of a bad repair. It had been kind of overly restored. So it was kind of glossy, but it was clearly strad. Mm -hmm. um, so UCLA got it back. Mm -hmm. uh, but with the, the instrument the, was also uh, a couple of bows and another instrument. It was in a double case. And so those instruments were recovered too, except the bows. Yeah. And it it was also a very small world. Yeah. Violin world. The the concert or the, the quartet evening um that in Los Angeles the last that the instrument was there was at Fran at the Rosen, home of uh, Fran Rosen. Fran who, Rosen. Who Nathaniel Rosen's mother Yeah. The and cellist, she, yeah, you know? she was in charge of the Colburn the collection. collection, and we so we knew her. The Through Colburn that. collection is a collection of instruments in Los Angeles. 
And the uh, Coburn and, School of Music yeah. that she financed. Yeah, and, and, and so, he had a huge collection of instruments. So we knew her from that. The One of the other violins was that had belonged to one of my professors at UOP. Uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, world. all of a sudden, everybody, it was just, we knew everybody connected with this. It was, and and it seemed like it was, all the tendrils were pulled at once, you know, I it, we had known all of these people separately, but all of a sudden, everything was drawn together with this story of this violin, the Duke of Alcantara. Alcantara is a dry province in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably was there, maybe from Stradivari's time. Uh, Stradivari was selling quite a bit to the Spanish court, etc. Um, during his lifetime. Uh, went to France. We saw all the papers of all these hands it had been through. Uh, the shops that it had been through, uh, the papers that had been written on it before it was gifted to UCLA. Um, and that, that actually the insurance, I don't know why, the insurance company still owned that violin, but UCLA got it back. I, I never heard the end of what happened to that insurance agent. <laughs> he may be in Alaska now. But what, what it did, that our friend Carla, who was a violin maker, became lawyer, who did it pro bono for working with it to get to UCLA, became then a specialist in recovering um, lost or stolen arts. Like uh, she's and teaches now at Berkeley. And so it started her career in a, in a it, wonderful it, direction. It shifted her, her career, yeah. yeah. It gave her a purpose that was really befitting her. Uh, she has given speeches. She has written uh, a kind of a book about even this issue. She, I think, she wrote the story for uh, the L.A. Times. Is that the yeah. one? And a Saturday, yeah. a paper. You know, yeah. so yeah. the details are better there. You know, because even with us, names go away after so many years. But, but she, um, yeah, it launched her direction, uh, and it's amazing what one instrument can do. And And what it did for us, I think, was, it was interesting because uh, UP, was it UPI, one of the press agents or press pools called and wanted all of the facts. So, I mean, just facts about this story, very dry facts. And they had published those and sent them to every news, I guess Hmm. this is how it works. Then we started getting mail with all of these clippings from every little paper from Japan to Germany from everywhere, everywhere. The, the south the phone was ringing off the well lawn. but the but it every thought... story was different everybody everybody got the facts charles osgood even wrote a poem everyone would get the facts of this story and then spin their own yarn with the facts having nothing to do with the real story as we saw it which was, it was yeah interesting. it's interesting and then Everybody would read these articles and call us and say, hey, I have a Stradivari too. And then we would have to say, well, we probably don't. It's very rare that you run across a Stradivari. It's, uh, oh, it's made in Czechoslovakia. Well, uh, Czechoslovakia wasn't created until 1918. And then it, you know, it's demise in the, in the yeah. 70s or 80s whenever <laughs> Czechoslovakia fell well, apart. We heard somebody say his German period. Yeah, during his German, <laughs> dur- during his German period. So because of all of these made by Antonio Stradivarius made in Czechoslovakia or Germany or West Germany. But and then and it was aggravating because we weren't getting any work done. 
and and I thought, oh my God, I was I was feeling like getting wow. rude to the callers. There was even even a news here, TV news wanted to come up. Yeah, yeah. Connie Chung wanted Connie to, Chung. and they were incensed that we didn't want to have him here. Well, but, this was a little a little yeah, later but, with, but, with but, that. Yeah, but but still, it was. A, they said, no, we don't want to be on the map like that. Yeah. Well, you know? so so we kept getting all of these calls, and and at a certain point in time, I thought. You know, these are my parents. These could be Seagrin's parents calling and wanting good information. So don't get angry. They're just, it's just a wave. Mm. It'll get over it. I think the violin world wanted us to become experts at that time because that's a different thing to become an expert to say, oh, this is and this isn't. Uh, As one of our friends said, X, the unknown, and spurt a drip under pressure. Um, And uh, we just didn't feel like I mean, it. if we were headed that way, it, it did just the opposite. It pushed us back from that. What we do is we make instruments. That's what we want to do. We're winning competitions making instruments. We love the process of making the instrument. That's like playing, in a sense, if you think about it. And it's like us playing a duet when we're working on them together. Is or, that or, It's a process of doing one thing after another, just like playing music is. When it's done, it's a it's a thing, but when you're doing it, that's where it's fun. But the other joy, too, is when you hear it and you know your instrument is playing an orchestra we, or a, somebody comes back and we get a CD from them or we hear it on stage, you know. This is our instrument that's playing for many people and they're comfortable, they're happy. And, and uh, that is what is tickling us, but it also sometimes is a curse too, especially for me at times when I know my instrument is out on stage, or ours for that matter, you know, it's out on stage, you know, playing, and then there's always this questioning, is it strong enough? Is oh, it that is enough? yours then. Yeah, it's mine. <laughs> you know, this constant, is he struggling? We don't want to have him look struggling, you know, because that is a bad image, you know. She was also awful. Just horrible watching our kids play soccer, and it was just it's, she's just not an optimist. She- <laughs> but but still, there's so much that you want to give somebody a tool that there are that becomes part of them without you know an extension, so they can be musical. They don't struggle with their tool. It's like having a dull knife. You don't want to have a dull knife and do fine work, you know. Well, that inevitably brings up the idea of perfection, the striving for perfection. What do you think about that? Sometimes uh, in my life, what I've, you know, you can listen to Heifetz and it's pretty close to perfect. He was pretty close. But you can also listen to Louis Armstrong, who was just the opposite of perfect. and, And his meter was off and he would reach for notes and not quite get them and leave some out. And just break your heart while he's doing that. And and sometimes when you're looking at someone's work, like even this late Strad, you're you're looking at a man who's who's made or been in a shop where twelve hundred instruments were made. You know, I'd say about a thousand instruments by that time in his life when he made the Duke of Alcantara. By that time he was almost on automatic pilot. His you know, his hands knew what to do. He had muscle memory of all the things he needed to do. And he was just old. And so what comes, what you see there is 
when you see the tool marks that are left, the, the places that he couldn't quite see to clean up, and the, and the, and the purfling that's not quite perfect in the corners, and, and a little sketchy around the edge, and, and the Fs that are cockeyed, and there's something really perfect about that, I think. That's, that's when perfection is to me, uh, is when it's just human like Louis's work, like Louis Armstrong's work, like Strad's work, late. But it's a different perfection because they haven't seen the Industrial Revolution and what it did to the violin-making world too, which is kind of like... Um, and, and that was kind of a little bit a problem in the violin-making school in Mittenwald with that we were kind of trying to be perfect as machines. That was our training, you know, perfect tooling, perfect this and that. And then when you look at old instruments, they are not perfect. And that is truly my struggle to let go, to, to let go from these criticisms of my schooling and, and to be perfection and say, let it happen. Yes, it is important to be a good with your tools. To, you can carve and and you can see if it's not perfect, but by the carving, that you have a good sense of shape and tooling and everything else, and let it happen. But if you're not tooled and don't have good eyesight, you 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 can see that in their work, it's it's not quite good, you know. But knowing how to work and then letting go, mm. that is the art. That is where where life comes in. Mm. And know, restoration so. needs perfection. Yes. You're working on a Strad. Uh, we had Yo-Yo Ma's cello in recently. You're working on that, and you just want, you everything you do has to be perfect, but you cannot be nervous about it. Like a, like a doctor would be if they're cutting into your aorta. You want a practiced hand there, um, not a nervous hand. And so we've, I think we've gotten to that stage where we're not worried about that's, that. But, but that's where that's where you truly need to have yeah. tool skills. Yeah. When you do restoration, and you had better, and or you shouldn't you be doing. Also, it. have to have a good sense of the maker. So when you when you retouch or when you when you are repairing, that you pull yourself back. You can't retouch something and make a big, you know. Um, but you have to blend in. You have to be kind of like you haven't been there yeah. as much as possible. And do as little as possible. And uh, with respect. And that is yeah. that is where we'll... This is what we learned at Vice Hour. Yeah. Uh, and we've pushed the envelope further and further with not doing things to old instruments just because... You know they're they're now treasures. They're because, like Sigrun says, they're tools. They get used. They get handled for a lifetime. They get somebody else who handles them for a lifetime. Some people are quite careful. Some people are not. Uh, after twelve owners of a Strad, say they can get pretty tired. It's not up to us to do more damage trying to repair them. So we try to find ways of not doing work these days. In a it takes us twice as long to not do something, but it's it's worth it sometimes. Well, we had we had um, the fortunate experience uh, that the 
that the American Federation of Violin Bowmakers got together with the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, the at the time the um, Cal what was it Conservation so, and Analytic Analytical Lab. Lab, and there was a wonderful group of furniture conservators. One just recently died which is really, really sad because he pushed the envelope too in their department to preserving originality and everything. And when we went both to, to that lab at um, different times to learn from them and them f- there from us, because we in the violin world have always conserved varnish, majority of us, you know, trying to preserve and keep. And they looked at our violin varnish and said it failed from the beginning it was put on you know so and they just started to learn from it from us how to look at it and so it was and we we pushed together this idea of intervening less and less you know if it doesn't have to be done you Mm. know things don't don't have to be um polished to a high sheen uh, cracks don't have to be 100% disappearing on instrument I mean uh, that's just it's life mm. it tells a story in itself that that yes I have lived you know and things have happened to me you know yes we have wrinkles you know you know how ugly we look when we are pulled apart you know <laughs> we, we look uh, we lose our identity or our faces when we are stretched to a, unrecognizability you know that can happen to an instrument too you know so it was started with the duke somebody was trying to stretch it into some plastic (laughs) surgery on it but But, yeah that it's funny when you listen to the antiques road show now yeah you what you hear is people saying oh if you hadn't refinished this this would be you know worth 20 times what it is uh and oh or this is wonderful look at the original patina Somehow violin makers, and I don't know what the deal was, but we we left the wear, you know, if you put a violin up on your shoulder, you're going to wear the varnish off there. And if you if you put your chin down before there were chin rests and shoulder rests, it was just a violin in your body and your clothes and your sweat and 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 all of the places you touch it in a lifetime. And for some very interesting reason, we left it alone. We would not refinish instruments. They get refinished sometimes, but it's 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 usually outside of the trade. Or well, we did a we did a, a re revarnish on a on a JB Guadagnini violin in the late nineties that that a somebody in Los Angeles oh. Galia had stripped. Oh, excuse me, cello. Guad cello. Excuse me, JB uh, Guadagnini cello, a late cello from him, um, and uh, we were asked. This this there's a violin maker in Los Angeles that was talking Musi- instrument owners musicians into stripping their cello. It couldn't possibly sound or the instruments of yeah, their varnish yeah, because strip the varnish they from were the compromised instruments. over the years by yeah. violin makers. And he had this varnish. And I met him. He was just out there, but he um, he had this varnish that he felt was bringing back the sound if people he, would just let him take you know, this these compromised varnishes yeah. from centuries yeah. off. And know? he was ruining violins, just ruining them. So we we got this cello in and 
we were hired to re-revarnish it and antique it and make it look like nothing had happened. So we did that. We spent a lot of time. <laughs> the owner was a nasty little guy. Um, I think I can say that. Uh, and was griping about how much it was costing. And and, and, and we didn't even charge what we, we put in yeah, it in and, the years of learning. And There at the no end, way. I showed it to a few very talented experts who believed it wholeheartedly. I had to call them back the next days and say, we revarnished that. And then uh, uh, last year or the year before. No, it's a couple of years more. Well, time, a couple of years now. Flies, remember. It does. Um, so a couple of years ago, we were looking and there was an auction and the auction had a had a flyer about this very pure Guadagnini cello that was being offered for sale. And <laughs> and there it was. And it went through Europe and it, all the experts. Evidently, were, it had gone all over Europe. Every, Everyone was saying it, it was, was the purest one they'd seen. <laughs> it was very, I mean, it's a, it's flattery, but it was also this nasty little guy cheating now. Uh, we call the auction company. The very next day, the blog changed to incredible condition to what we had done to it. And, and our honesty, That's I think that's... Mm -hmm. That's an easier place to go sometimes, is to be quite honest. Um, and so, so the, but it's still sold for a record price. And it's still a beautiful cello. I mean, it, but this guy had taken not just the patina off it, he had stripped it. Uh, and so that, but, but by and large, the violin industry, uh, industry meaning, again, when it was, you know, from seven, from 1550. Um, it just doesn't, we've just left them alone somehow. And But it's a curse nowadays for us too. Because as we love these old instruments and their looks, and your musician goes on stage holding an old, old instrument, you often see in the programs, what is he playing, you know? And it sets up a tone. Now for us as new makers, you know, Walking on stage for a, a musician with a totally brand new looking instrument, it's not necessarily an, an image that the concert goer wants to pay for. And so, and us being restorers at the same time, we admire these beautiful instruments. So when we build stuff, we do antique them. We do take them back to past the first owner. You know, or something. So, whoever goes on stage doesn't look brand new, like out of the you know industrial brand new. And but even with us in in the building world, there is this this uh, constant tug of war. You know, of um, no, we shouldn't do that. We should have people play new ones. That's what we are doing. We don't then we we deny ourselves our personality, you know? And if we just fake other people's work, you know, or make copies all the time. But at the same time, when we make copies, we we can make we can make a copy that is is fooling, obviously, but that's not what we are doing. But when we make a, a copy, colleagues still say, Oh, that's a group on Africa. They can still tell it, even if we make a Montagnana copy or, you know, or a Strat. You know, there are certain certain things that they can pick up. Yeah, well, we have a look. We have a certain Th look. That's a no matter what pattern we make, yeah. 
unless we really go out yeah. for the tit for tat coffee. Yeah. And we have done that. By the way, and antiquing is a very old tradition in itself. There's a there's a chance mm-hmm. that 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 the uh, some of the early Italians were antiquing instruments. Um, during uh, uh, Ruggieri was antiquing an instrument and putting an Amati label in it uh, uh, in in the oh, 1650s. And in the 1680s, there was some. For, until recently, there were a lot of uh, instruments from a town of Brescia theoretically made in the 1580s to the 16 till the plague year of 1632 um, when the violin, those violin makers were wiped out and then there's this there's a study called dendrochronology where you count the rings on a tree and then they started finding some of these instruments that were made in in 1630 with tree rings in them from uh, 17. 20 <laughs> and it didn't quite make sense and so this is kind of a new way of experts refining their technique of uh, at least ruling out certain instruments you can get very old wood and lie to the dendrochronologists but uh, people didn't know that at the time they didn't know that there was going to be a science in the in the 2000s where that got to be an issue so yeah it's a it's interesting it's interesting. This has been we've done this for forty years, something like that. We both started in nineteen seventy-two. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is this? How long have we been doing this? Forty-two okay. years. Yeah. Forty-four 40, years. 40. Well, I graduated in seventy-six. Well, but we were making before that, yeah. so it's been a long time, and we've it's been a lot of interesting things to see. And again, mostly what we like to do is make. We do some high-end restoration for some shops. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say also that the antiquing as a, as an art form, especially uh, as an art form, got popular in France in the in the eighteen twenties. So we have a, there's a long line of that as part of the art form of making the violin. So this this technique of antiquing instruments started in seriously in France, where they the the, uh, the uh, Lupo shop, and this was in the 1810s, 20s, and 30s, up through the 1880s and 90s, where, where, uh, for the same reason, people wanted to be have an old instrument, an antique instrument, to have it look older. Um, recently, in the guitar world, they started uh, doing. Uh, guitar makers have different names for the same thing. So do furniture makers at the Smithsonian. Mm. Uh, they're uh, what did they call them? Not coverings, but. Uh, um, oh, varnish they called. Um, uh, well, whatever. So, uh, but they call it, guitar makers now, antique electric guitars. So they look like they've been handled. So they get something that looks like a 1953 uh, uh, Telecaster and put belt buckle wear on it and chip some of the paint off of it. And and they call it relicking. So they're, they, you know, again, we're, we're calling it antiquing. They're calling it relicking. Uh, and I just those guitar makers. It's like those Levi's. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it's everything. Oh, like I have that. a whole box from in my attic. Yeah, well, those are those, I <laughs> relic them though. Yeah, yeah, they're all pre-washed because I because I've worn you did them. Relic. Yeah, I did relic. The <laughs> yeah, no, I've been wearing five hundred one since <laughs> yeah. since I was twelve. So let us listen now to a brief portion of a performance by a remarkable Korean musician who is currently studying at the Herb Albert School of Music 
at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her name is Ji-Hun Huang, and she is performing the Brahms Violin Concerto in D major with the UCLA Philharmonium. The violin she plays was made by Antonio Stradivari in 1732 and is known as the Duke of Alcantara. That brings to a close part one of my conversation with Joe and Sigrun. Part two begins with a discussion about the different kinds of varnishes used on violins, both today and back when the great Italian violins by Amati, Stradivari, and Guarneri were made. They also talk about the practice of antiquing new instruments and how a violin maker, if he or she hopes to be successful, must not only be skilled in the making of violins, but must also possess a keen understanding of human psychology. I think you will enjoy what these two talented people have to say about a subject they know very well. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater with additional help from our daughter, Emily McHugh. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information about this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. When we listen to the news today, we wonder what will happen in the world in the days and weeks to come. So much of what we hear is worrisome. 
But then I think about all the pleasure music brings into our lives, and my heart is lifted up. I hope these podcasts lift up your spirits as well, and that you will listen again to Rosin the Bow. Thank you.